So I think if you don't have enough banks in your portfolio, still not too late. Still not too late. And you see the beauty of the banking sector. You have so much of choice. You want to play it extremely safe, HDFC, Kotak. Slightly more risky, Axis, ICICI. Little bit more risky, Indusind, IDFC First, Federal Bank. Even more risky, AU Small Finance Bank, the PSU banks. So you have a full choice. You decide what what works yeah. for you. It's like a menu of yeah. banking stocks. You yeah. decide what you wanna you what exactly. you wanna have. Exactly, and it'll create a. But one way or another, you have to have banking stocks in your portfolio. Hey everyone, welcome to the tenth episode of the Indian Market Story. We're here to talk about banks, a key component of any investor's portfolio, and forming twenty two percent of the Sansex, important driver of the economy, and uh, something everyone should understand to understand how to maximize their portfolio returns, as well as to understand what drives the Indian economy. So we're here once again with our returning guest, Mr. Deepak Mehta, a market expert who's here to talk about uh, banks and how they can be a key component of your portfolio and drive returns. Yeah, well, Varun, thank for inviting me again on your on our podcast. And it's such an important topic to talk about banks today. I mean, it has it is a must-own sector in every portfolio, and banks are really, I think, what is driving the stock markets at this point of time. If you have to ask one simple question, which is the leadership sector? The leadership sector is banks, and Bank Nifty is already at an all-time high. But uh, I think that going forward, also for the next several quarters, uh, these are blue sky scenarios for the banks, and I think a lot of banks offer great opportunities for investors to invest in. So it's a great topic to talk about today. It's something which I'm very passionate about as well, since we have a lot of investments in banks anyway. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let's, uh, I guess, let's dig into that. What are the key factors that are driving banks, and what makes them such an attractive bet for the next couple of quarters or years? So, Barun, can I take everything back a little bit sure. and explain the context of what banks are and why banks are such a great investment uh, avenue for uh, a lot of uh, you know investors, private equity, government, all the players over there. So, I think in India, if you see when you go to a savings, open a savings bank account, what interest are they paying you? Four, five, six percent max. On current account, there is no interest paid to you at all. When you go to borrow from the bank for anything, whether it's for a car or for a house, a working capital loan, the bank charges anywhere from nine percent to twelve, thirteen, fourteen percent. Mm-hmm. So that gap between an average of five percent to an average of ten percent, that five percent gap is what in our financial parlance is called the net interest margin. The net interest margin for the larger private sector banks is between four percent and six percent. For the public sector banks, it is three to five percent or so, and that really is the cream, which after removing the expenses, is then you get the net profit. And that particular margin, I I suspect, is amongst the highest in the world. Mm-hmm. See, in China, Japan, Europe, U.S. The actual interest rates are used to be in the two three percent type of a range, so there was no way they could have such a high net interest margin. But in India, despite being such a large economy, and uh, you know banks being so prevalent everywhere, they're getting a five percent differential. It's like you know it's straight away income for them. Mm-hmm. Plus they have a lot of fee based income as well. Mm-hmm. And after removing the expenses, a lot of it is uh, 
percolating down to the net profit. There are other costs. <laughs> we'll yeah, come yeah. to that as well. Yeah. yeah, I think Warren Buffett said it best. I think banks is one of the best businesses to be in. It's a Absolutely. He's invested a hell of a lot. But uh, I mean, I guess maybe something to, to maybe sober that reality. I was looking at over the last five years, how banks have done. And just to, I guess, maybe throw some numbers at you. Over the last five years, the bank Nifty has returned 62.3% in absolute terms versus the Nifty that's returned 72% or 72.7% in absolute terms. And this sort of trickles down to private banks and PSU banks as well, where private banks have returned 46% over the last five years. And the PSU bank index has returned 31% over the last five years. I mean, we're saying that there's this cream that banks are collecting and they're, all, you know, they're a great bet to be made. But the last five years don't seem to have been too kind to banks. And uh, it seems like we've outperformed the Nifty. Is, I mean, am I reading that right? Or is there something more? They have sort of? underperformed the Nifty because I think right from 2018, when the ILFS crisis started, right until I would say um, post-pandemic, the first year, first six months after the pandemic, the banks have been continuously been under stress because of non-performing assets, NPAs. So we talked about the net interest margin, mm -hmm. that 4 5%. Mm -hmm. But you know what the biggest cost for the bank is? When the loans go bad, they need to provide for it. So when mm -hmm. they are giving a loan to any enterprise or individual, they hope that that person will repay the loan in time and along mm -hmm. with the interest. But if for some reason they are unable to pay it, then the bank has to take that hit in its profit and loss account. Right. And that really is the biggest component of the cost for the banks. So right from 2018 and even before that, 15, 16 onwards, the banks have been muddled with a lot of NPAs, which they have had to provide very heavily. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the economy has been sluggish post-ILFS. Then we had the pandemic also. There was the demonetization also. So there have been various events because of which the growth in credit also had been muted. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, the volume for the banks didn't move up adequately. Mm -hmm. So the revenues were a bit constrained. And then also you had these high costs of provisionings which had to be made. Mm -hmm. So that's the reason for the underperformance of the bank and bank Nifty versus the Nifty. But that is fast changing now. Mm -hmm. And I think the next three, four years look very exciting for the banking mm -hmm. sector. Yeah. So I want to just maybe come back to this NPA thing. Uh, because it's, as you mentioned, one of the key drivers of underperformance in the banking sector. So I think all the way, all the way back in 2015, I, I believe it was Credit Suisse, which is now dead, um, you know, produced a report called the House of Debt on how the banking sector was extremely overexposed to a few uh, industrial houses that a lot of which have since gone defunct, some of which have since thrived. I think Vedanta, GMR, GVK, uh, Reliance ADAG, um, and Videocon and a few others were the main culprits of the NPAs back in 2015. And um, from then there was a whole cleanup cycle there and then the ILFS you know, cleanup cycle happened again. So can we talk about you know, what that journey has been like? What is it that the government has done? Or how, how is it that you know, they've managed to clean this up? And what assurance do investors have that this won't happen again? Because that, it seems to be a recurring problem, right? That's true. I think it's a very interesting question, Varun, because, you know, the biggest problem in our country has been that we haven't been able to get the formula right for providing debt to large infrastructure projects. And all these problems which you spoke about and the way the NPAs went up from 2015 onwards and all the groups also which got involved because of the mess, uh, the mess they were in and that percolated to the banking sector was all due to project finance. 
So what is project finance? So you want to set up a plant, you want to set up a road, a port, airport, anything you want to do. You need money which is 8, 10, 12 years, you know, repayment horizons, right? But the banks, typically, their resource base is on call. Savings bank account, fixed deposits are two, three years. Current account is instantly withdrawable. So they are, banks are borrowing on short and lending on long. So there always could be a mismatch in terms of uh, ALM mismatch, asset liability mismatch because of the 10 years, mm -hmm. point number one. Point number two, I think a lot of these projects were not well managed. Mm -hmm. The costs were inflated and they did not get executed in time. Mm -hmm. And they were essentially unprofitable. Power plants, road projects, steel companies, you name it, I think, the expansion which happened from that 2012 to 18 onwards, all those projects, a lot of them went bad. And then when the companies couldn't repay the loan, then obviously the banks were affected because of that. And typically when you're doing a project finance, the collateral is not that heavy. I mean, mm -hmm. in the sense that it's all plant and machinery which gets depreciated. And mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they get caught up in a lot of the legal mess. So the banks mm -hmm. also are able to access those assets. So the real critical problem why the banks have been under stress in the past decade and a half or so has been because of this project finance. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, I think they've cleaned up the balance sheet. And now at this point of time, no bank is going in for project finance. In right. fact, there are no large projects also coming up where banks need to finance them, at least not in the private sector. Right. I mean, we've talked about the net interest margin, which is basically the gap between what the bank has its deposits and, and what they're earning on their loans. So if they're not financing projects, what's the big place where they're deploying capital? So where, where are they issuing the majority of their loans right now? Retail. Retail, retail, and retail. That's the mantra for every bank CEO. They just want to grow the retail book. Mm -hmm. And you know why? Because retail has proved to be quite resilient when it mm -hmm. comes to repaying their loans. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a cultural issue in India, mm -hmm. that when we take a loan, uh, our first objective as a family is to repay the loan, mm -hmm. to be debt-free. You know, debt has always been like a burden on any, everybody's chest. So basically, our culture, our discipline is such at the retail level that we want to be very compliant and very obedient when it comes to repaying the debt. Mm -hmm. So per se, retail has been very good in terms of NPS. Of course, there are exceptions. Secondly, the banks also, when they're lending to retail, they're largely secured. So whereas retail means people like you and me, the common man, why does he need to borrow money for a house, which is solid security, for a vehicle, mm -hmm. which also can be easily repossessed and resold so they can recover the loans. Mm -hmm. Then it is for businesses. Businesses also have plant and machinery, land building, which are generally pledgeable. And then next is working capital loan, which is uh, pledged against uh, working or against stock, debtors, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And mind you, RBI has tightened the screws like mm -hmm. anything when it comes to lending. The kind of norms and the checks and the balances which banks have to do now to even lend the smallest of amount have been tightened. I think the regulator RBI has done a fabulous job. They have learned from all the past mistakes made by the banks in the last 15 years or so, and all a culmination of all of that is being put into good lending practices at this mm -hmm. point of time. Yeah. That's you know, what's are. interesting to me about retail lending though is, um, and it's not like, you know, you can't get a retail lending bubble. I think 08 is one of those, uh, yes, one US. of the best examples of how retail lending can become an absolute bubble. 
but I sort of trace back what led to that over leverage and what led to that bubble. And a lot of that was driven by securitization of those retail loans. And I think one, uh, one interesting difference between the US regulator and the Indian regulators, um, you're simply not allowed to securitize retail loans and trade them at the scale uh, particularly produce derivatives on them at the scale that the U.S. regulator used to allow. I think now they've yeah. put a, a number of restrictions on it. Um, and I also don't think we've reached, you know, we don't have that asset price bubble uh, brewing anytime soon, uh, which I think was was quite obviously in play at the U.S., at least for the benefit of hindsight. So, you know, hopefully this... this uh, Touchwood, this retail lending doesn't turn into a bubble. But, you know, if we take the retail lending out of it and we take a, a slightly broader view of the economy, um, one of the key functions of banks is to lend to businesses uh, in, in part because that leads to a strong capital base. Uh, it encourages and it enables business to invest in fixed assets that drives growth forward. Um, I guess two questions here. Do you think that banks are going to return to that space? And... If they don't, do you think that that's a negative for the economy? See, first of all, I want to just touch upon the 2008 which you spoke about because I think that's where your uh, interest in economics <laughs> suddenly took birth, as I remember. And I think that, uh, you know, it was very badly managed in the US. And something similar is unlikely to happen in India, as you said, partly because securitization and derivatives on those are just not allowed. And secondly, also now, I think we have very strict... Uh, norms, the Sybil, Sybil score, mm-hmm. and uh, even mul- multiplicity of lending to a single entity or a single person, all of those are being tracked. You know, we are using more and more information to ensure that families don't get over indebted. Mm-hmm. So the likelihood of, uh, you know, something, some blow up in retail from massive scale is unlikely. Mind you, when we were doing project finance in those years, the NPA touched 15%. Mm-hmm banking industry. 11% for the banking industry, 15% for the PSU banks. So I don't think that the repeat of that is likely as far as uh, retail uh, banks per se are concerned. The second part is that, so apart from retail, what are the banks lending to just now? So yes, of course, they are lending to companies. They're lending for expansion projects. They're lending for greenfield projects as well, right? But now I think that fortunately for the banks, the companies they're lending to, their balance sheets are in far better shape mm-hmm. as compared to the past. Because over the last 10 years or so, Indian private sector has just been deleveraging continuously. Mm-hmm. Right? We've not had a capex cycle for last 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. And therefore, capacity utilization has been peaking over here. Mm-hmm. And companies have been able to increase their return on capital employed by sweating their assets more. So at this early stage, which we are in, when it comes to lending to corporate sector, the balance sheets are strong. So I don't think the banks are getting going to get hit on that count. But there's always the risk of overexposure. You can get carried away. And you know what the problem, you know, Varun, is that it is very easy to cut out a big ticket loan. Mm-hmm. The bank reaches its targets. Mm-hmm. It instantly gets fee-based income. The interest income starts. So it's really tempting to do a large 100 crore loan. Mm-hmm. But try lending 100 crores to 1,000 individuals, 10, 10 lakh rupees each. Yeah. Uh, so that's just it's not a, that's no easy. brainer. Yeah, it's not yeah, easy. Yeah, it's not at all so, easy. So uh, the banks have to be very cognizant of this risk. And they have to, you know, pull themselves back from this temptation of lending big ticket loans, mm-hmm. which look good on the balance sheet, which show the growth, but have a very high risk factor. So if I understand what you're saying, 
is that the key winners in the banking sector are going to be those that are able to crack loan origination and loan distribution Absolutely. wealth. So let's maybe think about who's no, doing it distribution better. and recovery. Distribution and recovery, right. So origination, distribution and recovery. So within the banking sector, I think let's maybe split up the PSUs and the, the private sector banks. And let's start with the private sector banks because they're one of the, you know, the, the biggest outperformers over the last 20 years. Um, you know, one, one stat that I really love is that over the last 24 years, the Nifty's returned 13% compounded, right? And that's an outstanding return. Yes. But HDFC Bank has returned 26% compounded. Yeah. So let's talk about which private sector banks are managing loan origination, distribution, and recovery the best, and who's poised to deliver this outstanding return that's going to double the Nifty or, you know, become a multi-bagger. So, you know, I think that there are many who can, you know, fit that criteria. And um, we'll talk about a few of our favorite banks as well. But uh, let's just go back a bit to the birth of these private sector banks. So after 1991 liberalization, in 1993 under the Narsimha government, RBI for the first time in decades gave out 10 banking licenses. Mm -hmm. Right? HDFC Bank, ICICI Bank, Access Bank, earlier called UTI Bank. There was Global Trust Bank, Centurion Bank, Times Bank, and two, three other banks. I don't remember the name. Of that, three or four banks are still around and they are the largest uh, banks in the country just now. So that, I think, the 1993 was the defining moment for the banking industry. And really, it opened up a great opportunity for investors. And that's how you got a HDFC bank, which delivered a 26% type of so, a compound return. I guess one, one quick question here. Um, India has been independent since 1947. Obviously, everybody knows that. Why were private banks only first allowed to operate in 1991. I mean, surely even in pre-liberalization times, um, there must have been some private banks. So what's the, I mean, if as a quick adjunct, what's the story there? So I think, you know, it goes back to the fact that, uh, you know, around independence, right, of 1960s, 70s, there were private banks which were owned by industry houses. And we should cover this thing as well, that why industry houses are not allowed to own banks. And, but they were using these banks just to channelize funds for their own projects. And the agriculture sector, the SME, and retail lending was ignored. Then Indira Gandhi came into the picture and wanted to change all of that. So she privatized the top 10, 12 banks or so, I think 10 banks or so. And since then, I think RBI has been uh, managing the banks with a hawkeye, preventing them from overlending, preventing them from uh, you know, getting into any kind of a mess as far as NPAs are concerned, making wrong bets on which groups mm -hmm. to lend to, and focusing and forcing the banks to do more agriculture and priority sector lending, right? So at that time, you know, right through the 17, 70s, 80s, 90s, early 90s, the thinking in the country was more of a socialist blend. Mm -hmm. So banks were like the medium for the government to push their schemes. There were those loan mailers mm -hmm. to make sure that credit goes to agriculture, to the poor, and that whole experiment also did not work out well because these banks got into trouble at that point in time as well. Right. So prior to that, it was a very highly controlled uh, sector. Interest rates were 15-16%. Who can make right. money yeah, borrowing yeah, at yeah. that? That's... Then once the liberalization came in, these banks were born. They got technology. They got good service. And economy also started to pick up after liberalization. So they had more lending opportunities. And the entire juggernaut started from 1993. And you can see that Today, among the top 10 companies, three or four will be the largest banks, ICICI, Access Bank, HDFC Bank, 
Kotak Mahindra Bank, they are amongst the largest mm-hmm. market in terms of market capitalization. So, so much wealth has got created yeah. by the banking sector. It's really amazing. Let's look at some of these banks. Right? I think, and, and let's start with the juggernaut in the room, HDFC Bank, uh, that I mentioned before. One key headline with HDFC Bank is their merger with HDFC, which I guess the the original entity. Um, how do you see that playing out, and and how do you see HDFC Bank moving forward in the next, you know, maybe year, two years, and decade? What does that path forward look like? No, I think that it's a it's a very strategically right decision to merge both the entities. Um, at the stage in which India is, and the, at the rate at which the Indian economy is growing there's going to be a lot of demand for credit. You will require to lend extensively to several sectors. Mm-hmm. And mind you, Varun, the banking sector, a good banking sector is the foundation for a good economy, for high growth economy. You need strong banks mm-hmm. who can lend, who can cut out those big checks, who can sustain retail lending, mm-hmm. who in turn sustain real estate and mm-hmm. automobiles. And the whole wheels of the economy, they, the grease, it is said, is the banks which move the wheels of the economy. Yeah. So right now, I think the merger between HDFC, HDFC Bank creates a large large balance sheet, a large bank, which can, which is in a position which has the capital adequacy to take big ticket, to give big ticket loans, to expand the retail lending mm-hmm. to all corners of the country. Mm-hmm. So it's a great, great decision. And partly HDFC Bank has been underperforming because its growth rates had slowed down also size is an issue. And generally, we've seen a compression of their price to earnings, price to book multiple. And that may continue. But when HDFC comes into the fold, I think it will bring a new sense of energy because there are, I would say, 60-70% of HDFC customers don't even have an HDFC bank account. Right. So it's going to be great synergy for both these companies. But there could be some teething trouble, technology-related issues, extra provisions which HDFC bank may have to make for SLR, CRR. It's a complicated thing. It's a of complicated course. merger. But I think give it 6 to 12 months and HDFC bank will back, be back to its winning ways and truly outperforming. But HDFC bank, okay, I've seen banks for 30 years. There are, into my mind, only two banks which have stood the test of time, which have never ever been in any NTA mess. Mm-hmm. They've always had pristine, clean balance sheets. They may have slight ups and downs in the NPL, but by and large, they were never impacted because of any form of NPL. One is HDFC Bank, other is Kotak Mahindra Bank. Okay. Other than that, you look at the history of every bank, SBI, PNB, Axis Bank, ICIC Bank, you name it. They have had, had, they have had, had a lot of issues. With, with but I think HDFC Banks is... Uh, I mean, I guess their winning formula set by HDFC in terms of their loan origination, distribution and recovery because housing finance is, is one of the most secure and lucrative forms of consumer finance. Um, I think that's that's maybe where their pedigree started. Culture. The culture in HDFC, HDFC Bank was, first of all, very high degree of integrity. Mm-hmm. You see, we had so many, um, I would say, scandals around banks and bank mm-hmm. CEOs. Right? Yes, bank CEO Rana yep. Kapoor was imprisoned. We had Axis Bank, ICICI Bank CEOs also live in a bit of a cloud. Yeah, I think ICIC uh, Bank is one of those high, really, really famous cases as well. But can you name a single HDFC Bank CEO which had been involved in any whiff of any scandal or anything? No. 
So it's their corporate governance standards, the high level of integrity, their lending practices, their conservative approach. Mm -hmm. I think that has stood them in very good stead over time. Yeah. And that's the reason, that's the underlying reason why HDFC Bank has performed so well. And even now it finds a place of pride in everyone's portfolio. I think let's move on from HDFC Bank to the other bank you mentioned as being, you know, one of those pristine banks that never, that's never been hit by scandal. Kodak Mahindra Bank. Yes. Another bank that was born out of an uh, NBFC. I actually don't know very much about Kodak Mahindra Bank's form, forming and, you know, where they came from. Uh, if you could maybe highlight that a little bit. Yeah, so one of the most dynamic bankers in the world is Mr. Uday Kotak. And um, you know, he uh, formed a banking, non-banking NBFC in partnership with Mahindra Mahindra Group. And that was called Kotak Mahindra Finance Limited. And they were the pioneers in bill discounting, right? Born right here in Narman Point mm-hmm. itself. Pioneers in bill discounting and they made a ton of money at that time. Mm-hmm. Just by, uh, you know, if you had a purchaser, yeah. uh, supplier invoice, bill. Invoice discounting is one of, is another one of those hyper lucrative loan origination distribution and recovery strategies. Absolutely. Because it's extremely short tenure. You're highly unlikely to default on your operational creditors. Um, recovery is always backed by a, by an asset that's immediately callable. Um, one of the best best loan origination distribution that's right. recovery. So we started. They started. He started his career with bill discounting, and then back in that was before the 1990s. I think more like 91 or so. And then when uh, the government was giving licenses, he didn't get in the first round. Not in 1993, but I think two three years after that. Uh, they converted Kotak Mahindra Finance to Kotak Mahindra Bank. And the rest is history. Again, I think what is common between HDFC Group and Kotak Mahindra, conservatism when it comes to lending. I have great respect for bankers who are extremely conservative, who can say no to very attractive proposals, but you know they do their due diligence and when they lend, they're 100% sure that the money will come back. The trick about banking, Varun, is to avoid NPAs. I think uh, uh, there's a Warren Buffett quote about banking that I really love. Yeah. Banking is a great business to be in uh, as long as you don't do anything stupid on the, uh, on the asset side, yeah. which is harder to do than you think. Absolutely. And another quote of his, it's only when the tide turns that you know who's swimming naked. Yeah, yeah. So the thing about uh, HDFC and Kotak Mahindra is, as I said, the lending practices have been great. They focus a lot on technology. Uh, they try to offer many financial services to all their customers. And Kotak Mahindra is one of the few banks which has got all the financial uh, businesses, all the financial service businesses under their own uh, own, own company, means mm-hmm. the holding company, which is the bank. Mm-hmm. So all of those businesses, the value gets accrued to the shareholders of Kotak Mahindra yeah. Bank. And they've been pretty aggressive when it comes to lending as well. They focused on uh, building a good current account savings account, CASA deposit mm-hmm. base. They built on brand. They built on lending to the common man. You know, mm-hmm. all of their, uh, their motto was so good, Kona, Kona, Kota, Kona, Kona. I mean, they want to go across the country. You know, every household should try and have a Kotak Manager Bank account. Yeah. Give credit cards and give all their services. And see where they are just now. I think yeah. Uday Kotak is one of the wealthiest bankers in the world. Yeah. You know, one thing that uh, that's actually of great interest to me is that Kotak Mahindra Bank is one of the only few Indian origin banks that's considered uh, a tier one investment bank. I think in yeah. India, the top investment banks are, you know, your classic global ones. Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, um, 
but Kota Mahindra is one of the very few Indian ones that fall within that bracket. And it really speaks to their competence and their integrity that they're able to do this business so well. That's true. Another common thread between HDFC and Kota, the minimal churn at the top. Mm-hmm. You see, banking in the day is a people's business. Mm-hmm. So if you manage your HR practices well, you keep the talent within your group, then I think you ha- already have an edge compared to the rest of the banking industry. Mm-hmm. And that's been the bane of the PSU banks. You know, mm-hmm. There's a constant churn at the top. Yeah. You know, so therefore, and also, of course, their HR practices are not the best. Mm-hmm. So while there was a lot of talent within the, within the PSU banks, it just could not be harnessed in terms of getting better outcomes for the performance of the PSU banks. But we'll talk about PSU banks a lot. Coming back to Kotak Mahindra Bank over here. So as I said, good practices consistent performance, avoided all the NPA bubbles per se. Mm-hmm. So great, uh, I think, great returns from Kotak Mahindra Bank right. as well. And um, I think uh, we are seeing that maybe Uday Kotak may be out of, uh, you know, as per RBI norms, he may not be the CEO of the bank in the next um, year or so. But I think they've got a strong leadership in place. Yeah. So I guess from, from two bellwethers, to, let's try and find the next set of emerging banks that you think might have that same culture, that same thread of success. Uh, I mean, I'll throw some names at you. AU Small Finance, Indusland Bank, um, any, any, any sort of smaller banks that you think have that same capability to grow at that same rate, that have that same integrity and that same ability to manage the loan book? IDFC First Bank, certainly. I think it has uh, all the common, uh, uh, you know, properties, characteristics as Kotak or HDFC Bank has got again run by very dynamic CEO Vaidyanathan, uh, who was ex-ICICI Bank, very much focused on uh, uh, retail lending per se. And what IDFC Bank, IDFC First Bank has done is focused very heavily on building low-cost deposits. And their low-cost deposit percentages, the CASA percentage is equal to or slightly higher than the tier one banks like HDFC, Kotak Bank, mm-hmm. ICICI Access as well. So his funda was very clear. I want to have low cost deposits and then I'm going to lend it to the absolute, uh, I would say, uh, the, the most trustworthy customers. customers and really, uh, I would say, small ticket loans Okay, where you can get a higher interest income. So you know that they have their net interest margin, what is spoke about, is 6%. Wow. Higher than HDFC, Kotak, Axis, is the best in class industry. Another bank which comes, which, which matches that net interest margin is AU Small Finance Bank and we'll talk about that as well. But IDFC First Bank built this particular uh, bank through a merger between IDFC Bank and Capital First. Capital First was set up by Vedinathan and it was a fabulous NBFC. Again, great track record in NPA. I always rate banks and BFCs on their capacity to recover their loans. And it had a fabulous track record over there. Both the merger was perfect because IDFC was wholesale bank, Capital First was retail, retail banking, and the merger it resulted in a pretty large bank per se. I but, don't think that that merger, if I remember correctly, I don't think that got off to the best start. I think there was a lot yes. of baggage there. That's right. I think the, the baggage was because of the because of IDFC Bank, where again they had done project financing. Mm-hmm. And those loans started to sour over there. And those are big ticket loans. You see, one project finance loan goes bad, that's 50, 100 crores hit on yeah. the balance sheet. And yeah. that's just unsustainable. Yeah. 
So I think IDFC First Bank is certainly uh, amongst the contenders uh, when you say that who, which could be the next generation bank, which yeah. the next HDFC or ICICI or Kota could be IDFC. So let's move on to AU Small Finance, right? Like what makes them so great? So first of all, I think that AU Small Finance Bank is a relatively new bank. So from that angle, you know, I want to be a, just a bit cautious over there because I don't think they have seen all the circles. Of course, IDFC First or Bank also has not seen all the all the circles and all the cycles in the banking industry. But AU Small Finance Bank certainly did pretty well when the pandemic was there and prior to that even during the ILFS crisis per se. Um, but uh, uh, again, I think they are focused very heavily on the right uh, asset classes, uh, the right uh, lending products, be it housing loan, loan against property, SME loans, MSME mm -hmm. loans. Mm -hmm. And again, their lending practices are very strong. Then they're able to they're able to recover their loans very well. So NPAs mm -hmm. have been kept very much under control. Also, AU Small Finance Bank is amongst the most aggressive when it comes to growing the loan book, mm -hmm. and uh, they would easily be growing at twenty five percent plus now in terms of the total volume of business. They were growing much faster three four years ago. So, so. I, hang on, I, I'm, I'm, I want to actually ask a question. Here. Like with AU Small Finance Bank, you say that they're able to. Um, manage their NPAs particularly well, but you know they haven't been through that many cycles. But at the other end, we're saying that they're able to grow their loan book at a well above industry average pace. Yeah. Um, how is it possible that they're able to continue growing that loan book so aggressively without diluting asset quality? That doesn't. That's either extremely rare or something doesn't add up. Well, I think it's, uh, first of all, the size is smaller than the larger banks. Secondly, you know, there are so many... Uh, avenues for lending. Mm -hmm. uh, geographical expansion also plays a role in it. Mm -hmm. uh, which particular product you pick up, your type of uh, uh, scrutiny which you do, mm -hmm. the securitization which you do, the kind of security which you have, I think all of those things, uh, you know, they got the formula right. See, when it, when it comes to banking, you know, you need to have a right type of a rhythm, uh, a right type of communication, to your employees as to what loans to take and what loans to avoid. Mm -hmm. And then you have to back it up with really strong risk management systems. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to say that you know you have a strong risk management system, but only when the tide turns, you know how good it has been. Yeah. Because you need to collect on those loans. Yeah. And if you don't collect, then what is your security? How are you approaching it? Are you restructuring it? Are you cutting your losses? There are many ways of dealing with it. Right. So I think they seem to have got that formula right, the recovery part. At the same time, I think that uh, you know they're a very technology savvy bank. And India per se, last few years, banks have been generally doing very well. Mm -hmm. And banks like AU Small Finance Bank thrived when the entire banking sector was under a bit of a cloud of, I would say, uh, slowdown because of all these ILFS crisis and the pandemic and mm -hmm. the NPA issues. So it was a nice, new, clean bank, mm -hmm. so they could grow very easily. It was well capitalized. It has attracted a lot of private equity investors uh, and marquee investors as well, which is why they've been able to raise capital also, and they've been able to grow at this fast pace. But mind you, it trades at a very high premium mm -hmm. to the average banking stock. Yeah. So you need to keep that in mind. I think HTSC is at 19. I think everyone's 19 or so. And he is at 35, if That's I'm not right. mistaken. Price 20 multiple. Yes. Very, right. very expensive. So let's move on from maybe the, the wealth creators to the wealth destroyers. Who's got banking wrong and what's gone wrong there? Um, so I think banking goes wrong only when you lend to the wrong people. And the prime example is Yes Bank. 
and uh, what value they have destroyed is just i mean very very sad it's just the saddest story i think in the banking industry in recent times and uh, i think a lot to do with reckless lending a lot to do with uh, you know trying to cover up those loans a uh, lot of manipulation and on the whole i think uh, very badly managed uh, in terms of uh, risk profiling so very what, it was a dark chapter with yes bank was it project finance again or i mean were they how, how did the loan book go so bad largely project finance lending to the wrong groups per se and right. ever greening of loans right no not having adequate security and just growing the loan book recklessly without giving adequate importance to uh, who you are lending to right you know so that's what went wrong the nps went through the roof almost 20% of its book went bad mm-hmm. again over here the retail book was fine they okay. had good they had a good brand they attracted a lot of deposits as well so the going was good but when the ilfs crisis started to hit in one by one by one the rbi had to step in and then there was no way the bank had to be completely yeah. uh, restructured the i think once a bank loses trust that's what happened it's it's a death spiral There's right. there's no coming back. The biggest destroyer has been Yes Bank, but a lot of banks also have done very badly in periods in phases. ICICI, Axis Bank, Indusind Bank. I think all of them have gone through a rough patch, mm-hmm. and all of that had to do with this project finance, big ticket corporate loan. The wholesale banking is something which Indian banks have just not got it right mm-hmm. as yet, and I think we are seeing uh, some amount of uh, wholesale banking now starting to pick up. Mm-hmm. but only time will tell whether those practices and those loans are going to be still good or are they going to go yeah. the way we have seen in the last 5 uh, 10 years or so i think it'll be a good 5 to 7 years before you know we see yeah, that cycle absolutely. turn around and absolutely. see who's done well who's done badly absolutely. so that covers the the banks per se uh, but you know uh, there is a renewed vigor in the public sector banks also yeah. so one another another really interesting statistic that i wanted to point out is that over the last year the private bank nifty has returned 34.88% uh, versus psu banks that have returned 62% yeah. and they've been i think one of the biggest winners over the last year so i guess what's gone right is this you know short termism or is there something fundamental at play no i think that uh, as i said earlier that at at that peak and i think 2018 if i'm correct the npas with the psu banks were 14.5% of their total loan book Mm-hmm. and from there they have now come to about 2 and 1/2 3% or so mm-hmm. so largely that all the loans have been written off or have been fully provided for by the yeah and there's also been there. a lot of recapitalization by the three government 3 lakh crores plus yeah 3 lakh crores in last 3 4 years huge amount but you know that's your and my money it's taxpayer money which has gone towards recapitalizing these banks these banks use that capital to write off the loans made to all these business groups we spoke about Mm-hmm. and to various other project finance uh, projects which they had financed which went bad so in a way it has been a hit on the exchequer yeah but hopefully that's behind us now and psu banks had have, have been now their balance sheets have been largely recapitalized their operations have been restructured yeah better risk management has been put into place i think there's been a, a three separate waves of mergers as well yes that's right so the banks themselves uh, have grown in size in terms of network in terms of balance sheet 
And now I think they are in a nice position with the economy picking up uh, to focus on lending again in a responsible way. Mm -hmm. They have the balance sheet, they have the network. To an extent, they are the brand also because of the PSU bank, there's automatic comfort mm -hmm. when it comes to giving deposits over there. Yeah. No PSU bank has ever gone bankrupt lost, in India. Yeah. Actually, in India, hardly any uh, you know depositor has lost money in the banking sector. I mean, yeah. kudos to the RBI for that. Even yeah. in Yes Bank, nobody really nobody lost, lost money. money yeah. yeah. So, but when it comes to PSU banks, it's automatic that comfort is there because you effectively the common man thinks he's lending to the government. Yeah. And his money is completely safe. So they have that franchise, they have that trust because of which they're able to raise low-cost deposits. It's just that the lending practices were not right, which they are focusing now on, and they're able to get that if they're able to get that right. And one would hope it at larger scales is more resilience in the loan book as well, right? Yes. Like if you're a smaller bank and you know a large ticket item goes bad, that's a huge hit to your balance sheet. But if you're much larger that's and that right. same same loan goes bad, it's it's less of a hit to the balance sheet. So uh, so PSU banks uh, are you know now starting to liven up after many many decades of underperformance. You are seeing this recent outperformance. Um, they used to trade below their book value, which means people yeah, thought yeah. that uh, they would uh, the, the whatever they saw the book value, the banks were worth less than that. Yeah. Now at least they are trading at 0.9 to one time book, book value. value. So, and uh, a lot of the problems are behind them. In fact, these banks are now benefiting from recovery of loans, right. which they had written off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do we expect that this these good times of PSU banks will continue? Um, are they also focusing on focusing on this retail lending, this proper loan origination, distribution, and recovery? Or are we not maybe confident enough in their management practices as of yet? See, my biggest concern with uh, PSU banks is going to be their customer servicing and technology platforms, because. Keep in mind, Varun, that banking is also a very competitive industry. Mm -hmm. And you have new generation NBFCs, you have fintech companies. Uh, there's so much of disruption yeah. happening within the banking sector. I think there's, well. a, there's a, you know, a spate of new neo banks that are arriving. Yeah. Jupiter and Fee come to mind in particular that are trying to be more digitally first and offering you know, uh, services to the consumer. Yeah, so that's what's going to impact uh, the PSU banks. And, uh, you know, they have their uh, regular customer base, but I'm not sure they'll be able to grow it mm -hmm. adequately. Mm -hmm. Because when it comes to uh, some of the kind of uh, needs, aspirations of the millennials or mm -hmm. even the, uh, the Generation Z, I don't think that PSU banks certainly fit their, uh, op you know, their, their, their what they expect from a bank. Right. So that deposit base is not probably going to grow as fast as some of the private sector Even banks. Even the lending side. And as a consequence, the lending side as well, I imagine. So I think that what, what is happening is that we are seeing a kind of a one-time adjustment taking place in the PSU banks from deep discount mm -hmm. to certain averages. And it may you, you rally for the next few quarters and you may see these banks do well for the next two, three quarters. But I suspect that when the next NPA cycle does hit, that's when these banks, PSU banks, will be tested. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that uh, you know they may come out uh, unscathed. Yeah. So I would just say that they're a great trading bet, but I don't make them part of my core holdings. Right. Well, I mean, talking about core holdings, um, I think I think we both believe that you know the right banks should definitively be part of the core holdings of any investor in their portfolio. Uh, do you want to sort of expand on that a little bit? Maybe 
convince investors that don't have you know quality banking names in their portfolio um, to buy the right ones. So I mean, it's a very simple explanation over here. So recently we had the GDP number; it was seven percent plus for Q4. And next year, that is rather current year, 2024, we are expecting the gross domestic product of India to grow by 6.2-6.3% or so. And then there is 5% average inflation. So the average uh, GDP at current values or at market prices will grow at 11-12%. Right. For economy to grow at 11%, the demand for credit is a multiple of that one and a half times. Could be one to two times. Say one and a half times. Right. So, one and a half times you're looking at fifteen percent type of volume growth. By volume, I mean increase in deposits and, and increase in loans. That's yeah. why we call volume. So, the volume is going to grow because you cannot grow that. You cannot grow the loan without having deposits coming up. And if you have deposits, you're going to lend. So, volume of the industry, I think, should grow at fifteen, sixteen percent. And it's a simple calculation. If volume grows at fifteen percent, profits can grow at fifteen percent. Right. Maybe higher. Yeah. But So when you're going to have compounding of earnings for next three to five years at fifteen, sixteen percent, why would you not want to buy such a business? I don't understand. I think it's a no-brainer. Yeah, and I think fifteen to sixteen percent compounding growth in volumes is comfortably over the last twenty years Nifty average of about thirteen percent. It's more so than that. Yeah, it's well well above that, and I, I guess even higher for banks that are going to win because if you imagine PSE banks that aren't going to grow as quickly, is it fair to say that you know? You yes, you got a, you got the point right. I didn't think of it that way. But yes, I think the PSU banks will grow at 12-13 percent or so, and for the private sector banks, the new generation fintech companies, their growth rates will be even higher. Yeah, 18 percent or so is to be expected. Yes. So 18 percent, if you have a if you have a 18 percent growth, you're doubling profits every four years. Yeah. And that kind of returns are exceptional. So I think if you don't have enough banks in your portfolio, still not too late, still not too late. And you see the beauty of the banking sector, you have so much of choice. You want to play it extremely safe. HDFC Kotak, slightly more risky. Axis ICICI, little bit more risky. Indusin IDFC First Federal Bank, even more risky. AU Small Finance Bank, the PSU banks. So you have a full choice. You decide what what works yeah. for you. It's like a menu of banking yeah. stocks. You yeah. decide what you wanna you what you wanna exactly. have. Exactly, and it'll create a. But one way or another, you have to have banking stocks in your portfolio. Absolutely. I think if you expect to uh, beat the Sensex and Nifty in your portfolio, you cannot do it without the banks. And as I said earlier, these are blue sky scenario for the banks. These are decadal low NPS NPA ratios at a time when the entire economy is revving up, and demand for credit is going to grow. I mean, not exponentially, but at a nice steady clip. Mm-hmm. And look at the big sectors doing well for the banks. See, mm-hmm. banks are love it when real estate does well mm-hmm. because loan book uh, home yeah, loans can home do loans well. can do well. Auto industry, another fabulous uh, sector to lend to, right? And auto OEM sales are also doing growing at a fine clip. Yeah. So that's doing well. A whole host of capex cycle is picking up in the private sector. Mm-hmm. I know we spoke about wholesale lending, but look, you know there are responsible borrowers over there as well. Right. Good quality companies, pharma industry, in engineering industry, hospitality, hotels. I think the whole sort of yeah. many sectors are trying to start to look up, which provides avenues for these banks to lend. Mm-hmm. You know? So. I think there's no way you can have a portfolio without having enough banks. Thirty, forty percent, I would say, should be banks in your portfolio, and uh, you know, just sit tight. You know, you, sometimes what happens that uh, you could have a bad quarter, spike in NPA here or there, but one shouldn't get uh, too 
uh, frazzled by it. I think uh, next three to five years look very interesting for the banks per se. Right. And I, and I think on that note, hopefully any investors that don't have banks in their portfolio uh, decide that that's what they want to buy next. And, uh, you know, they're hopefully convinced by your argument and, and they buy the so. right banks to grow, you know, their, their portfolios at 18, 19% and comfortably beat the index. So uh, I think on that note, we're going to end the podcast. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we hope that you took something really interesting and, and meaningful away. And uh, don't forget to buy banking stocks in your portfolio.